Okay. Yes, episode seven. You are listening to Don't Read the Synopsis, a bookish podcast where we read and talk about all things books, except the synopses. I'm Zach. And I'm Devin. We are bookish besties, mood readers with cursed buddy reads, and a love of romance. Well, well, we find ourselves here another week, and we are not recording at our usual time. Devin and I are usually record on Sunday mornings, like we early in the morning, like 7.30, 8 o'clock. It is 7.30 on a Thursday night, so I think we're both feeling the pressure of the week and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm definitely looking forward to talking about books. That makes almost everything better. I'm actually really not as tired today as I thought I would be. Mm -hmm. I think because I've been excited about talking about this episode for a while. Yeah, this was fun. This was probably my favorite that we've done. Well, we brainstormed this idea what felt like so long ago. Yeah. I noticed recently a lot of folks are doing something that have been doing something really similar, which we'll we'll talk about in the in a second. But do you want me to start with what I read recently? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, so I will say I'll probably talk about this more next week when we wrap up our uh, months, two months of reading, but this has kind of been a weird reading month in terms of my mood and my mood reading and how that's kind of worked out. And as I talked about things at work have been really busy. I'm trying to revise some articles based on editorial feedback, two different scholarly articles, which doesn't typically happen in that timeline One has been in the works for a really long time. So of course I'm excited about getting that to publication, but I have to do this technical editing work with the citation and references to a style that I'm not usually used to to doing. I don't use it very often. So my mental energy is consumed by this work and a lot of things going on. So because of that, I've been really moody, particularly with my reading. And I didn't want to read something typical or usual. I don't remember exactly how I remembered Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas, but it was available at my library on Libby. So I said to myself, I'm going to read the first 15% of this and if I'm not pulled in, then I'll stop and look for something else. Because I had at that point just been staring at my Kindle for a while. So I started reading it and it was relatively late at night but I was almost instantly intrigued with both the characters and the atmosphere and had a hard time setting it down and going to sleep. Catherine House is the is this prestigious college that's where the title comes from. It's a prestigious college in this idyllic setting in the woods of Pennsylvania because I have friends who lived in Western Pennsylvania. I've been there to visit And I can tell you that what I've seen in that part of the country is gorgeous, but also kind of secluded and a little bit ominous in some ways. And I think this works so well as a setting for the kind of story that Thomas wants to tell. This college has produced successful graduates and people that are movers and shakers in society. But the trade-off is that students are isolated there for three years, living only on campus without access to the outside world. We see the action of the novel through the character Inez. She is, to say the least, troubled. She barely graduated high school. She's been partying She's been taking pills. She's sleeping with kind of dangerous guys. Anything that she can do to not think about the traumatic memories that are weighing on her. Catherine House is really the only place that she has to go. And she remarks on that relatively often. And I do think it's important to remember that. At first, she embraces the isolation as a way to hide from these consequences that she left behind in her previous life. But she is also starting to realize that she really doesn't fit in with the other students there. She lacks the motivation that seems to drive everyone else around her, like her quiet and very focused roommate, whose name is Baby. 
baby desperately wants to be accepted into this new concentration at Catherine house called new materials. It's in quotation marks. And this is a highly competitive department attracting the school's best and the brightest students and also a lot of its funding. But what do they actually do and what are they studying in these locked basement labs? And why are all the students asked to take part in these meditative sessions that border on cult-like and seem to wrap up their identities in the school itself? These are questions that Inez has, and we're following the story, as I mentioned, through her eyes, but she's also kind of in a haze. She is really disconnected from people around her in some ways, and you definitely feel a bit of that disconnection. She doesn't talk openly. She's not thinking even very openly about her past, so we don't get to know about it. So when I mean you're in her perspective, like you're really only seeing things through her perspective. Some people have suggested that there's a kind of dissociation there, but it definitely ramps up the mystery and tension of the novel because we only know what she knows and she doesn't know very much or what she knows she's not disclosing. There are definitely times here where I wanted her to do something, but I realized this isn't that kind of book. And I do think that the there's very mixed reviews. I think most of what I saw just around on different websites and particularly on Goodreads, is that it, people either really like this or they dislike it. There are very few like three stars. It's like one or two or five. And I think some of that comes from this lack of action. This is not your propulsive thriller of a story, dark academia, what's going on at this school? Let me find out and discover things. It takes a lot for this character to do anything. It takes a lot for her to act, even as she has questions about what's going on, even as people around her start acting really strangely, even as tragedy is striking periodically with the people that she knows. And again, she wonders if she's in danger, but she's also kind of not doing anything about it. And I really do think there's something purposeful and useful about her perspective. What does it take before we act on other people's behalf? How often do we in our regular lives wait until the danger is on us before we do anything or get outraged or make any kind of move? There's so much trauma from this girl's past. Again, we're not totally aware of all of it, but it's clear things have happened. And her depression and her fear tend to work as this kind of haze over her thoughts and her actions. So she's curious and she has questions, but she's not really compelled to take action. And also, again, she has nowhere else to go if she leaves. So she's kind of trapped. Finally, she can no longer ignore the truth of what is in front of her. But even in the end, there's still some ambiguity and distance, even through the reveals that we do see. There's no tying things up neatly here. But I did find the side characters really fascinating, uh, particularly Yaya, who's probably the most outspoken of them. They're all really fascinating in their own right. I enjoyed this book. I think it's weird and dreamy and full of atmosphere and vibes. I think the writing is just excellent. I gave it five stars, but it's definitely one of those books that is not for everyone. I think if you understand that there are speculative, gothic elements and that there's a narrative being told here about race and wealth and the cost of education and the connections you make. I think you can enjoy the story that Thomas is laying out for us. If you enjoy Shirley Jackson's writing in particular, we have always lived in the castle and the character of Maricat. I think you'd like this. There's a lot in this that reminded me particularly of that novel and of Jackson's writing. I can't wait to see what Thomas writes next, but I totally understand the criticisms and the people who don't like this. So it's just one of those kinds of books. I would say Blind Date with a book description would be Shirley Jackson vibes. There's an academic and woodland setting with diverse characters who have traumatic past. There's a dreamlike gothic story with a very ambiguous ending. And that is Catherine House by Elizabeth Thomas. I have heard a lot about this book. I have not, nor will I ever read it, which tends to be the case for a lot of books that you read, which is good. That's why we do this together because you read a lot of different things than I would. I do think Casey, my wife, would like this book. 
probably quite a bit. She's planning to write whatever, depending on what PhD program she ends up in, she started something that could be a dissertation based on uh, The Haunting of Hill House. So I think that she probably would like this book. The current read I want to bring for you all today is actually a series of three novellas by Allie Hazelwood called The Steminist. I don't really know how they pronounce that, but The Steminist. They're, they're basically a novella series based on people uh, or women in the STEM field. I've actually read all three of these, and I read them at different times, and I actually own them separately on Kindle, but you can now get them all together in a book called Love to Loathe You. I actually pre-ordered these all individually on Kindle when they were first announced, but like I said, they're now been published in paperback in a book called Love to Loathe You. I just finished the last of the three called Below Zero, but I thought I would bring them all for you in a wrap-up kind of moment about the series. The first book, not that you have to read them in order, but the first book is called Under One Roof. The second book is called Stuck With You, and the last, the one I just read, is called Below Zero. I know there are a lot of mixed opinions about Ali Hazelwood, but I really love the way she combines academia and women in STEM into a romance novel. It's kind of unique. A main complaint about her stories, and these also had it in there, is that all the men are always described as being so much bigger and taller, etc., than the main character, and it really just annoys me. One book would have been fine, but I've actually read all of her books and that have been mainstream published. And I, I believe that's the only thing that she's published. I, I think I've read all of her books uh, and they all had this problem. Otherwise, I really love her writing. This series of novellas also really have mixed reviews. So take my opinion with a grain of salt. All three novellas follow three separate characters and feel distinctly different. You have a roommate situation in one book, a forced proximity in another, and a second chance of sorts in book three. One thing I feel like Ellie Hazelwood did really well with these is they go back and forth in time really well, which is something I just really enjoy in novels in general. In books one and three, I hardly remember book two. It wasn't bad, just not my favorite. But in books one and three, the story starts at the end, and then you go back in time to when the characters first met. I really, really loved that. I don't know why, but it's just something I really enjoy in books. I think because knowing sort of how things are going to end up and then going all the way back to when things were nothing like that and watching the journey of how the characters end up there. Another thing I appreciated about these stories is that they're novellas, uh, so they're short. We have romance novels ranging from 250 pages to like 600, and it's just nice to see it done nice, neat, and wrapped up in a novella. I didn't feel like it was too short or missing anything. All in all, I loved these. Mostly book one and book three, I would recommend you read them. I do think I need to go back and read two again because I'm rather grumpy about that one and I'm not sure why. I think I may have rushed through it for some sort of challenge now and I can't remember what that might have been. Anyways, here are my ratings for them. Under One Roof, I gave five stars. That uh, is the one that is a roommate situation. It's also forced proximity, but Stuck With You, the second book is definitely forced proximity. I gave it a grumpy three stars that needs to be reread. And below zero, I gave five stars. It's hard for me to pick a favorite out of the three because I really loved Under One Roof. J just a warning about Under One Roof. There is a strong, strong theme of grief that I did not expect in that one. Just a little warning about that. But for a blind date with a book, I will do it for Love to Love You, which is how you can get them physically on one book. So I would say short, sweet, and to the point romance, women in STEM getting shit done, kind and caring, but sometimes grumpy men, some romance plus elements, especially grief in book one, roommate situation, forced proximity, and a second chance of sorts. Also, they're rom-coms, so what can, what can you miss? But that is, and this is already out, it is Love to Loathe You by Ali Hazelwood. I haven't decided if I'm going to read them or not. Mm, I think you would really like book one. I don't remember book two, and I feel rather grumpy about it. Uh, and yeah. book three, I think you could like book three. Book three kind of reminded me of book three in the Spoiler Alert series. Mm. So Cool. Yeah. Cool. Excellent. Uh, I got this idea for the episode from one of the booktubers that 
I watch who reads a lot of romance named uh, Chandler Ainsley. And in a recent video, she went back to the very first Goodreads Choice Award that she could find in Goodreads. And she read the nominees from that year for the video. And while we didn't want to do that, we wanted to think about maybe doing something similar. So I'm not sure exactly how we agreed on 2018, but we went back to 2018 on Goodreads to see what books were nominated for the Goodreads Choice Awards in Romance, what books we had read in that category, what books we had not read in that category, were we even interested in reading any of these books? Since we started brainstorming this project, a few other booktubers have looked at a variety of genres of Goodreads Choice Award winners in the past. There's an entire playlist of folks who participated in this really long challenge of reading all the past winners in different kinds of genres and vlogging it. I've watched a few of these and I find it really, really fascinating to particularly see the winners in various categories over time. And I think what they're doing is going back and reading maybe all the winners in the category that they've been assigned or agreed to. For our purposes here, I thought it would just be interesting to see what romances were popular enough to show up in this category. I was curious if I could tell anything about the trends we would see and if we would notice any kind of pattern in what we read. Some details about the Goodreads Choice Awards because I just found this really interesting. The nominees are chosen as users add books, review, and rate them throughout the year. For books to be considered, they have to be published typically between November 17th of the previous year, because I think that's the cutoff for that is around that time. So in November 17th of 2022 has to be published between that time and November 15th of 2023. So for the 23- Goodreads Choice, that's the timeline. Those books published in that time frame are eligible to be nominated for a Goodreads Choice Award in 2023. The top books then from each category are selected for the first round. In the first round, there are 20 books in each of the 17 categories. And then members of Goodreads, anybody who has an account, can vote for a book in each category. And then the final round will narrow to the top 10 books in each category. And then there's one last chance to vote, usually sometime the first week in December. So in 2018, almost 250,000 votes were cast in the romance category because you can skip a category if, for example, I would not vote in the fantasy category because I won't have read any of those books. So I do find it that number 250,000 to be pretty significant. In 2018, there were two Christina Lauren books on this list. I think that's pretty impressive. Many authors I recognize and expected to be there, like Mariana Zapata, Sarah McLean, who writes historical fiction, Alyssa Cole's historical fiction, um, Lisa Kleppis historical fiction. I'm not sure how you say her last name. And Jasmine Guillory. Of course, Colleen Hoover was there. I think one of the Fifty Shades books from Christian's point of view was there. That kind of surprised me because I thought by 2018, those had fallen out of popularity. For me, I had read only three of the 20 nominated books. This doesn't surprise me, honestly. I went back and looked through what I was reading. And in 2018, I was still reading a lot of Kindle Unlimited books. That hasn't changed since, since I got a Kindle. If I was reading romance, it was probably there. I think that Sarah McLean's historical romance, uh, Wicked and the Wallflower, is probably the only book from the list that I actually read in 2018. My other reads from the list have been more recent. So even though there were two other books I had read, I didn't read them in 2018. What about you, Zach? Did anything about the list surprise you? Had you read any of the books on the list? What was your experience as we looked at that list? Yeah. Also, I remember why we chose 2018. I remember we were sitting together looking at the computer, making decisions, and we went back a little further. And I don't think any of the books, like we weren't willing to read them. And I think that is important to note because when we do challenges, quote unquote, or things like this, we still want to pick from things that we at least slightly want to read, unless the challenge is reading things we don't want to read. So that's why we chose 2018. But I wanted to start off by saying this was really fun and I would love to do it again, either for romance or a different year or a different genre. It was really cool to go back in time and read what was popular then. For the most part, I was not surprised by what was chosen. And in 2018, I was 21 years old and reading more and more. When I was super young, sort of like Devin, 
uh, told us in one of the episodes, probably too young, I loved reading romance. Though as I grew up, I struggled with dysphoria and what it meant to me to be a trans guy who reads romance. So at that time, I wasn't reading much romance, but we all know I got over that mostly. And now I read about 70% romance. Looking at the list, I read one book from the romance category. Actually, Devin will be bringing that book as a book that she read for today's episode. I was not surprised to see any of the authors on this list and find it interesting that they are still at the top of today's list. I think that is both a good and exciting thing, but also makes me wonder how long it will take other authors to break through. That being said, any authors and other mainstream published authors are getting more and more attention these days thanks to social media. And I just think it makes reading and the book community so exciting. I was kind of surprised to see Colleen Hoover's book, All Your Perfects, got beat by the Kiss Quotient, but we talk about Colleen Hoover more than we do Helen Huang. Um, Devin did comment on this. Devin, what did you say? Remind me. Oh, uh, Colleen Hoover has a million books and Helen Huang does not, but yeah, I think you're right about that. But also, I think there's still room for more discussions about these authors. I'm a sucker for lists, so this really does something to my brain that's really fun and exciting. Feel free to send us any list you would like for us to read from or do experiments for. We are booked out through mid-June in terms of like episode plans and that sort of thing, but we could start reading for them. You can find ways to reach out to us um, in the show notes if you do find a list that you would like to see us read from. A good place to reach us is our Instagram. It's at don't underscore read underscore the synopsis underscore. And there's also a link to the Discord, which I check every day. Uh, so if you would like to use one of those methods, it's probably the quickest way to reach us. But again, in the show notes, there are other ways that, that you can reach us. So our process was that we each chose, we decided to choose two books from the list to read. One of mine was a reread. I'm very excited to tell you about that. How did this reading go for you? It really forced me, one, to read one book that I had been staring at forever to read, and then two, to help me work through a backlist of an author that I already love. The first book I want to tell you guys about falls in that first category I saw in you, uh, which is, I've been staring at this book forever, wanting to read it, and that is The Simple Wild by K.A. Tucker, uh, which got 2,332 votes. This has been on my shelf for a really long time, and I'm glad this episode forced me to finally pick it up because K.A. Tucker hits every spot for me in romance, and I can't wait to complete the series plus read her other books. The Simple Wild is a deep, heartfelt story about love, loss, distance in relationships, finding love again, generational cycles in love, and the great Alaskan outdoors, and so much more. Just thinking about this story makes me feel happy. On Goodreads, it has an overall rating of 4.33, which is not only high for a book, but is exceptionally high for a romance novel. I've noticed a trend of reviews in general going down across the board for books. That's a topic for a different day. I actually didn't realize the rating for this was so high until I was finished with it. The basic setup for The Simple Wild is that we follow two generations, a mother and a daughter, that are inevitably faced with similar situations. The book opens with Kala's mother, Kala being the main character, this is going to get a little confusing and reading. I've already had to like stop and retry to explain this. But basically, Cal is a young child and her and her mom are living in Alaska with her dad. Her dad is a pilot. He's gone a lot for work. Her parents are having a lot of marital issues. Her mom decides to fly home to Toronto. And the plan is that her father will come there eventually at some point, And he never does. I won't say more about that and their journey. But we immediately flip to Kala's point of view growing up in Toronto, separated from her estranged father who lives in Alaska. Her life is falling apart in several ways, but is also a a comforting one in, in other ways. One day, after a really crappy day, she gets a call from a stranger in Alaska, a female, telling her that her dad has cancer and she needs to come immediately. There the journey starts. Kala will find her own journey of love and be faced with similar situations her mother once was. The male love interest was also a wonderfully written character. Though flawed at times, he is patient and caring. He is well thought out and developed, and K.A. Tucker doesn't lean into any of those overbearing themes that I really hate in romance novels. I just thought this was all in all around a brilliant story. The setting is just beautiful, but doesn't neglect the culture of Alaskan people. It could be argued that maybe it could do better in in that realm, because I think we can always do better to represent people. But I really do think it did, and I'm not from Alaska, but I did think it did a good job from doing some research afterward. I even looked up pictures of Alaska and uh, the communities of people there, and I felt like K.A. Tucker painted a good picture of that. If I can ever afford to, I would love to visit the Alaskan landscape one day. 
Uh, I do hate being cold, but I could I could do it for a beautiful scene. Anyways, there are moments of laughter, tears, trying to reconcile with who she is as a person, how she's been raised, and how that impacts her or impedes on her future. You will fall in love with a lovely cast of characters and get excited to see them grow and connect. This is a 3.5 series, but point five being a novella between books two and three. I believe it's complete now. Uh, I just want to say there's a major trigger for a family member having cancer. I can't wait to finish the series and read more of K.A. Tucker's stories. As for it being written in 2018, it absolutely holds up to today's literature, and it honestly is better than a lot of romance I have read recently. I think part of this is because of current trends, etc., which could be an episode of its own. But one thing we were looking for when we were doing this episode was how do these books hold up compared uh, to now? And this one, in my opinion, absolutely held up to today and beyond. That was The Simple Wild by K.A. Tucker. I gave it every bit of five stars. I loved it, and I can't wait to continue the series. I'm so glad you finally freaking read this book. Me too. I loved this book when I read it. I don't remember exactly when I read it. I believe it might have just been last year. So I agree with your conclusion that it feels very contemporary. It doesn't feel dated uh, in any kind of way and definitely holds up. I think that the cast of characters in the community are really well-developed and adds so much to the story and this sense of working together and community and all of the things that make it difficult, I think, for Kala to try to figure out the choices that she needs to make. And yeah, it's really, really beautiful. And there's a lot of character growth for a lot of the different characters in the story. I think that sometimes I hear this first book, The Simple Wild, being talked about as like kind of like enemies to lovers. And I don't think that gives enough credit to what is really inside the book because there's so much more to it than that. And I also don't necessarily think it, it's more to me a suspicious of an outsider. There is this tension between. Kala being the outsider coming into this small community of the town, but also this community of found family that her father has kind of developed over time. And I think that's where the tension is. It's more of this outsider insider than I would say your typical kind of enemy to lover sort of thing. I don't feel like that gives it enough credit. And I think that's why exactly why I liked it. Cause I don't like the typical enemies to lovers. But I mean, yeah. you know, the main characters, don't like each other at first and they're snarky no. each on other paper on paper it's enemies to lovers but i think you're right that it it goes beyond that like yeah yeah it's so so good i can't wait to see what you think of of the other ones i'm gonna talk about my reread first which had 5050 votes i reread penelope douglas's birthday girl which has an average rating of 3.98 I was actually surprised to see this book on the list and also to see it rated so highly because it's an independently published book on Kindle Unlimited. It's an age gap, forbidden romance, taboo romance. Penelope Douglas's books are often a hit or miss for me. I remembered liking this when I first read it, which I think was maybe a year and a half or two years ago, but I couldn't really remember a lot about it until I started rereading it. I haven't read much of their other books in other series because sometimes the trope doesn't appeal to me or I'm just not sure what I'm going to get because it's been kind of hit or miss. So I've DNF'd a few standalones and books in other series that they've written, but this one had characters that pulled me in and that's probably absolutely a me thing. I think I most appreciated Jordan, who's the female main character, though she is very young and that often turns me off of some of the books as well. But she's 19 years old and she's trying really hard to move into adulthood. She works at a bar and grill. She takes night classes and she lives with her boyfriend, Cole, who has been there for her when no one else was. And this is really what ends up bonding them together. One night, Jordan's shift ends early and it just so happens to be her birthday. She takes a bottle of wine and a cupcake from her friend at the bar and heads to the movies 
where she meets Pike, though she doesn't know his name at first. Due to wine spilling and annoying exes who show up, Jordan and Pike sit together through this 80s movie. She shares her love of all things 80s as she then walks out to call her boyfriend to come pick her up. And when she does, Pike overhears his son's name. Yeah, Pike Lawson, who she was watching the movie with and feeling a little bit of attraction to, is Jordan's boyfriend, Cole's father. A rowdy party at Cole and Jordan's apartment got out of hand. Cole is arrested and he and Jordan are kicked out of the apartment. So Pike offers them a place to live if they will help out with cooking and yard work and cleaning. Pike and Jordan end up spending a lot of time together because at this part, Cole's pretty lazy, not really interested in hanging out with his dad. There's some misunderstandings between Cole and Pike because of Cole's mother. And that creates some tension where Cole ends up spending a lot of time out of the house, which leaves Jordan there with Pike. So this is interesting because of the age gap and forbidden aspects, but there's something really compelling about Jordan as a character that you understand in some ways why spending time with handsome, put together, business owner, true, legit, grown up is appealing to her. And because you like her, you can definitely understand why Pike would be attracted to her, but it still feels a bit weird to be rooting for their relationship where the taboo romance comes in. And I think if you're going to read something like taboo romance, you are signing up for that discomfort and you have to overcome that to enjoy it because that's part of what you're going in for, right? Because Jordan is so young and there's a power dynamic, right? She's staying in Pike's house. I think you can recognize that there is this power differential there that could be problematic but again, you understand in a taboo story, you're going to have to trust that Pike is good to her and fighting his attraction because he understands this power dynamic. And again, I think when it comes to taboo or erotic romance, you have to allow for some weirdness that you might not accept in other spaces in order to enjoy them. And if you can't do that, I think that's totally fine and that these kind of romances aren't for you and you can just avoid those. I do think that Douglas writes very compelling and relatable characters. And I think that that's been true of all of their books. I could so easily see the struggles that Jordan is experiencing. Sometimes she acted 19 and other times she seemed more mature because she has had some traumatic past and experiences. I wasn't annoyed by this difference. And I actually think it made a lot of sense. I mean, I teach 19 year olds and I think the tension between adulthood and responsibility and wanting to feel a sense of freedom, but also enjoy being young is really an obvious kind of tension. And this was quite obvious in Jordan. And I understood how she was reacting in these moments. If you like taboo romance, this is actually a really well-paced and well-written one. If you liked Praise, for example, by Sarah Kate, you'll find some similar conflicts and chemistry and tension here. And if just the idea of this makes you feel yucky and uncomfortable, definitely don't read any of Douglas's books. There's a lot of story here, I would say. It's almost 400 pages, so we are getting character growth and understanding. I do think that Cole, the, the boyfriend of Jordan, is really one-dimensional. He reads very much like a prop. That is one, I guess, character criticism I have. For my reread, I think I'd rate it 3.75. I don't know what I rated it at first, but that's what I would rate it now. How does it hold up is a good question. So considering the book that I just mentioned, Praise by Sarah Kate, came out this year, I think the thirst for taboo romance, particularly Boyfriend's Dad, is still strong. So I don't think this book is out of place in that. However, most of what I have read of that trope, and it's not a lot, the female characters are older than Jordan is. They are in their 20s, some of them later 20s. And I'm not sure why, but I do think it seems to make a bit of a difference, even if the actual ages would be still um, a decade or 20 years or whatever it would be. It seems that the more recent ones have a little bit older characters. I went back, as I mentioned before, to look at the romance I was reading in 2018. I don't think this book seems out of place among the other stories I was reading then. And I don't really think it stands out of place now because I do think there is an interest in these kinds of 
sort of taboo or forbidden romances and they're still being published and people are still reading them. So I don't feel like it is out of place. I will say I did not remember at all that there is a character introduced near the end of the book, not a sequel, but a next in the series promise to feature that character that still hasn't come out. And I, I was struck by that and thought, oh, I can't believe this still hasn't come out. I'm totally interested in this other character now and don't know what's going to happen if, if she, if, if she's ever going to get her book, you know, if that character is ever going to get her book. So not really sure what's going on with that. I know that Penelope Douglas has gone on to write some other series and is probably wrapped up in that. But I did think that that was an interesting aspect that typically if you see sort of spinoff series or another one, if you're reading that in the past, it's usually out by then. But I do think this was an interesting reread. I'm not mad I reread it or spent time with it. And I don't think it's particularly out of place. And I don't think there's anything in it that wouldn't be in a contemporary romance today. I bought a physical copy of this a while ago, like two years ago, and I sold it recently because I just, I don't, I don't think that their writing would be for me. And if it, if it would be, I can get it on Kindle pretty cheap. So I end up selling my copy of it, but I, I, I do think this, this particular subgenre uh, is still going very, very strong, stronger than ever. I would also say that this is one of their few standalones. Most mm-hmm. of the things that they write are in series. Yeah. So this was, this still stands today because they haven't written that other book. This still stands as a standalone because nothing else is attached to it. So that might be interesting to people knowing that you don't have to commit to a series if you want to see if this kind of trope is for you. I think that the characters themselves, again, are really compelling. And I think Douglas does that pretty well. There's a kind of understanding, but you do have to let go of some preconceived notions, some things you might normally, I think in any taboo romance, no matter what it is, like that's the part that makes it taboo, right? So I think that's why I was so surprised to see this on the list with 5,000, did I say 5,000 votes? That seemed like a lot to me for an indie KU age gap forbidden taboo romance book. That is a lot. And also I think arguably the Simple Wild is a better book. I guess it depends on what you're going into it for, right? But I don't know. I just... I think the Simple Wild definitely would have a wider audience appeal, more more people from a lot of different areas might be interested in it as a book. The other book that I read for this episode is Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating by Christina Lauren. This book took me by complete surprise. I'm a big fan of the soulmate equation and really enjoyed the on honeymooners by Christina Lauren. That being said, this book was one of their older works and I was nervous. However, I was pleasantly surprised this book, along with Vera Wong's unsolicited advice for murders, which I talked about in last week's episode are probably the funniest books I've ever read. I genuinely laughed out loud while reading this several times. I took screenshots, sent them to friends. I annoyed my wife with text from it. I just was obsessed. I really expected it to be cringy and have old or like bad jokes. I don't know why I thought that because I've loved their other books, but that, that I've mentioned, but I don't know. I was just really worried about it. Also, I guess I should mention if you don't know who Christina Lauren is and why I'm saying they, it's a, it's a duo of two people who write together both use she, her pronouns. I did read the first book in their series, the Beautiful Bastard series, which is really old, older than this. And I gave it three stars. So maybe I was expecting more of that. That series is more of a smut series than a rom-com. And Christina Lauren really nailed the rom-com elements. It was just so good. I guess I better tell you what it's about. And Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating, we follow well, Josh and Hazel. And the basic setup is that they knew each other in context before, but things didn't really work out and their paths have crossed again. I wouldn't really call it second chance, but kind of like I said in uh, the Ali Hazelwood books, it's a second chance of sorts. Josh is a really kind and simple guy. Hazel is the opposite. A lot of commentary surrounding the novel comes from the fact that Hazel was loud and playful and all over the place. Because of these characteristics, she is often laughed at by others and not taken seriously. This is a major plot point and it's done really well. 
Josh and Hazel decide to be wingmen for each other, to go on various dates together, looking for that right match. On these dates, double dates, they find someone for each other, for the other to date, and then they go out together. This oh, it was just so funny, but this is also a heartwarming story. It's a book you want to hold and cherish and read again, uh, and I, would lo- I can't wait to pick it up again. I think part of my love for this really comes down to Christina Lauren's humor. That really just works for me. When we do our wrap-up episode soon, actually it's next episode, you will see that I have DNF'd a lot of books this year already. I am really working to find what works for me, not only in romance, but in books across genres. And if we're if we're honest, it's mostly romance. One thing in romance though I love is humor. I want to laugh out loud, but I also want to feel something. Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating did both of those and did it damn well. I plan to read almost all of Christina Lauren's books, so I'll let you know how that goes and which ones work for me and which ones don't. I will say if you don't like the humor in their most recent works, this may not be for you, but I would probably still kind of push you to read it because this book was just absolutely everything I wanted it to be. And it's definitely going to be a book I hug and a book I want to pick up when I need a good laugh and something to just pick me up. But yeah, that was Josh and Hazel's Guide to Not Dating by Christina Lauren. Have you read Something Wilder? No, I have it though. So I definitely will. I definitely plan to get to it. I know that one got mixed reviews and I was curious as to if it was something about the humor because people said that it's just a little bit different from what they're used to from them. And so I was curious about what that, what that might be, but. It's always one of those where I think, oh, I'll get, I'll get around to that. Maybe I'll read that in the summer because it has a very summery kind of, I think it's about archaeologists or something or about. Something wilder. Yeah. It is. Treasure hunters, I think. Oh, you're right. Treasure hunters. I think. Yeah, that's right. With 43,138 votes, I just had to read The Kiss Quotient by Helen Wong. It won this category in 2018 and has 3.93 rating. And I hadn't read it yet, despite the fact that it's recommended to me all the time by a lot of different people. It was one of those where I thought, oh, yeah, I'll get around to it. And I actually own this book physically. So, you know, my interest was high at some point for me to pick it up physically. Somehow I just kept not reading it. So I'm so, so happy that this gave me the opportunity to finally get around to reading this book because I actually ended up reading this whole series in a span of a couple of days. I loved it that much. I was very surprised to find out that The Kiss Quotient was Juan's first novel. I will say I loved each of the books more and more, and I think her writing gets better and better, and it's already good in The Kiss Quotient. The Bride Test, the second in the series, might include some of my favorite characters, but I gave each of these books in the series five stars, and I could spend a very long time talking about all of them. But for this episode, I read Kiss Quotient, so that's where I'm focusing. Here we follow Stella Lane, who is great with numbers, but less so with dating. There have been a number of dates in her past that have not gone well, and so as a methodical thinker, Stella decides... I know what the problem is. I must need a professional escort so I can practice modern dating and learn all that I can about sex. She ends up hiring sexy biracial Michael and they quickly begin fake dating so that Stella can ease her way into these lessons. I love fake dating, but I think even if you don't, love that as a trope it makes sense here maybe more so in other scenarios both Michael and Stella have real stakes in this pseudo relationship that they have established so you really do believe that they would enter into this and and stick their neck out in this way for each other Wong unpacks their insecurities the social anxiety and abandonment issues that have shaped them each in their own way And Stella and Michael help each other overcome these challenges or at the very least be able to deal with them better. And their class differences create a lot of tension. Michael is struggling to make ends meet and trying to help his family with a lot of bills. 
Stella comes from a completely different economic bracket. She has a high paying job and also a trust fund, but both have a lot of pressures from their family. Stella is so relatable in her desire to find love and to be loved. And it's here that the author is drawing on her own experience with autism spectrum disorder, weaving it really subtly into Stella's character. And she never seems like a, a token or a stereotype in any way. Actually, Stella has a lot of pride and I love the different ways that she stands up for herself throughout the novel. There's a lot of exploration of implications of consent and what it does to self-worth, both from the perspective of a sex worker who has been used and emotionally abused and from Stella, a woman who's used to being neglected during sex. And they both gradually start to realize that neither one of these situations is normal. Michael goes beyond these rules of dating and teaches Stella to feel sexy in her own skin, to voice what it is that she wants and demand reciprocity from her partner. And her respect and appreciation for Michael starts to have an impact on his self-esteem and make him feel less like a sexual object and more like a person. And if you can't tell, I really believe this is a deeply moving story. There's a lot of social commentary here on the stigmas around sex work and around mental health. I found this so incredibly compelling, but it also reads really quickly. I kept making myself slow down because I wanted to enjoy it. All I wanted to do was read this book and I had such a busy weekend. I couldn't just sit and read this book. I definitely can see why it won this category. And while I haven't read all of the books listed in the category, this feels really well-deserved for the Kiss Quotient. Definitely holds up five stars. I gave them all five stars. Loved it so much. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about all of this cast of characters for such a long time. I'm thrilled I finally got around to reading this story. And I found the Kiss Quotient a really great introduction. And I do think about these characters. I just, I just loved it. I have also read The Kiss Quotient. I did it when I, I did it for a challenge when I was doing BookTube. And I think I gave it four stars then. And I can't remember exactly why, but listening to you talk about it, I actually went to Goodreads and changed my rating to five stars because I had forgotten some of the elements of that book that I maybe underappreciated when I first read it. And that is some of that vulnerability around sex and those scary moments and fear of embarrassment and just a, a lot of things that I think I personally relate with and I think I didn't appreciate when I first read it. I'm also going to be trying to get those Afterlight uh, special editions. So, And I think I will read the rest of the series. I am a little bit worried about that last book and the, um, the trigger warnings for that last book. But Yeah, the last book is very heavy. And... It's interesting because I was reading and reading and reading and I thought like, where, what is the heavy part of this? And then you get to like 45, 48% and I'm like, oh, I've hit it now. I texted Zach and I'm like, I, I've hit it. And then I, it was one of those things where like I hit it, but I just thought I hit it and it just kind of deepened. I cried for 20 minutes. Oh, see, I'm terrified of that. I don't like that feeling. Oh, I see. I like. I guess there's an appreciation that I have that I'm that moved by mm. what's happening with characters. I don't mind books that make me cry. I enjoy books that make me cry. I mean, I don't want to be fully, totally man- emotionally manipulated, but at the same time, yeah. I'm like, okay, like Ooh. twist me and set out. I'll take it. What happens to me is I start to spiral around certain topics. And that's how we know some things in books are triggering, like truly triggering. Um, like I, it, like if I read this, I might start to worry like about my mom and start calling her and like, it would just, it could lead me to like spiraling. Mm -hmm. Um, But also this year, and we could do an episode on this too. um, So many ideas for the podcast, but I have been not only in reading, reading is a big place where I've been trying to do this, but also in my work as a counselor, I've been trying to face grief head on and I've had no choice um, at my current job, which I'm grateful for. I'm trying to do some like exposure therapy for myself. So I actually think that that third book could be a way for me to approach it. And like I said, at I mean, just, just today at work, we had uh, someone cry, cry, just crying outside the office 
our front office called me down because I was backing up crisis at the time to go outside and, and ask the student if they were okay. And they had just gotten a call that their dad had suddenly passed away. And I, you know, in that moment, I had no choice but to step up. And so I think not to go off on a tangent, but I am trying to use reading to help me approach topics that are a little bit hard for me. Um, so yeah, maybe I'll get around to reading that third book as a challenge though. Well, I definitely, definitely think you would enjoy the bride test, uh, which is also love motorcycles, which is the third one. So yeah, well, the second, I mean, I guess it does feature into it, but there's also kind of a motorcycle aspect to the second book too, the bride test. Uh, I, I found it really endearing and sweet, which I do. I think there's elements of that in all of them, but I do think the the third book is is certainly heftier. It's not because of the grief aspect that it's so heavy. That is certainly a heavy part of it, but it is because at the same time, simultaneously, the character is going through struggles and no one in her family understands it and is seeing it because they have this other crisis that they're trying to deal with and she's trying to deal with it, but she can't manage both things simultaneously and to watch a character who from the beginning you feel a connection to go through that I think that's the part that makes it heavy it's because it's the intersection of her dealing with a diagnosis that she's been given that no one will listen to and on top of that having to deal with this caretaking and grief aspect in a very specific kind of family that has very specific expectations of her and that combo is I think what is the most heartbreaking part of it and I think that's why when people talk about the heaviness it's not just the one thing it's kind of the cluster of things and then the male character is dealing with some of his own stuff and some some body issues and things like that so it's got a lot of stuff going on in it and it's a lot of things and there might actually even be other things in there that do more a little bit of emotional work than just the grief but I highly recommend the series I thought that this particular book was really great and I again I can see why it won in this particular category because it would make sense to me that people who maybe don't normally read romance might have read the kiss quotient I would think kind of the same thing about the simple wild too, though. I think that I could see people who maybe don't typically read it go, might go in for that. But I feel like the kiss quotient as a debut would have gotten a lot of press, a lot of hype. And so it made some sense to me that a lot of people would, might have read it beyond your typical readership, but I don't, I don't really know if that's true. Do you have other thoughts about reading the books that we read on this list or about Goodreads Choice Awards as any kind of defining factor about the content of a book or would you use it to guide your reading in the future? Well, you're opening a whole can of worms here. I feel like we could do a whole episode on Goodreads Choice Awards as an idea because that's been a topic in the media. So I'm not going to dive too far into that. Okay. Well, would you use it? Would you use use Goodreads Choice Awards? Like, at the end of this yeah. year, if there are books in the Goodreads yeah. Choice Award and Romance that you have not read, would you consider picking one up based um, on this experiment? This experiment did surprise me, not in the sense of the Goodreads Choice, that it was Goodreads Choice Awards, but that books written in 2018 were still really good. I can't see a world that exists that I get to the end of this year and I have not read most of them. Okay. Um, you could go now, back to 2019 and read. We could circle back at the end of the year, though, and I might surprise myself. I might not have read as many of the popular romances I think I have. That's possible. I'll be uh, but, very intrigued to see what's even on the list. But I, I would, I would use it. Yeah, I mean, I am also challenging myself to try to move away from, to move away from review, like listening to as much reviews as possible. Because it's interesting to me that essentially what gets on the list is what people have read and rated as high. It's just based on the algorithm of how many people read this book 
and how high were the ratings of it when they read it. If it falls below a certain number, it doesn't get on the list. I don't know what that number is, but somebody does probably. You hear people talk about this, and again, it's a different episode, but it is a popularity contest. It is about what people have read and rated. But I feel like I might go back to last year or even 2020 or even 2019 and see if there's something on there that looks interesting. Like the next time that I'm struggling with a book, which let's face it, could be tomorrow because I'm so moody these days with what I'm reading. I hope I'm not actually as moody about my other things in my life as I am about my reading. But I get in these like weird ruts where I'm like, I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that. I don't want to read that. I couldn't see myself doing that to go back to last year or 2020 or 2019 and see what was popular and maybe, or what one did I read it might be a good way to approach even other genres that I don't know a lot about too. Yeah, for sure. Do you want me to tell you what I'm looking forward to? I do. First book I'm looking forward to is an indie book called On the Rocks. It's the Becker Brothers book one by Candy Steiner. It's already out. The way I found out about this book actually is every morning at one o'clock in the morning. And uh, that's because that one of my dogs has special urinary needs. I have to wake up in the middle of the night to take her out. And I always, in order to not get really grumpy, that's about the time that Kindle Daily Deals reset. And I usually check those at one o'clock in the morning. And I saw the book two in this series was on sale. Turns out book one is only like $4.99 full price. So like, whatever. I did not end up buying book two because I'm trying to not buy the second books in the series before I read the first. Anyways, essentially, this is, you know, a very indie romance on Goodreads. It has 9,000 ratings and 1,500 reviews, but I've never heard of it. I've never seen it on Bookstagram. I've never heard anyone talk about it. So when we get into like contemporary romance that's indie and new adult and on Kindle, I mean, there are like probably close to a million of them. Like there's a lot, there's a lot. Like you'd be surprised. It's all, it's, it seems like an infinite scroll on Amazon. Devin, you are the expert in these things, but it really does seem like an infinite scroll. Anyways, um, this follows the Becker brothers in a small town in Tennessee. Essentially, we follow two main characters who should never get together. And it's kind of like these two families that are opposing um, one side is the Ruby, who is the mayor's daughter, and she's destined to marry this guy who is the politician, who's going to be a politician, and so she's going to be a politician's wife, just like her mama and daddy always wanted, soon to be a family's legacy, blah, blah, blah. But then there's the Becker brothers, and um, they like just kind of are like these wild boys not typically something I'd want to read about but I don't know why but the synopsis and the cover just really pulled me in she's supposed to get married to this guy to be all these things in southern culture and she's attracted to this bad boy and I just want to see how it goes I don't love bad boy stories I don't love a lot of things about this so stay tuned I put it on this list for a reason because we are circling back to these books so when I see it on this list I am going to read it now I have deserved the right to DNF it but I will at least give it a try and so that was on the rocks that's the Becker Brothers book one by Candy Steiner that is already out I love this choice so much Because you're like, I don't know that I like this. I don't know that I like this, but somehow this sounds interesting. I have read a couple, I have read some sports romances by Candy Steiner and I enjoyed the ones that I read. I also DNF'd another book of hers. Who knows how you might feel? I'm so excited to find out. I am adding to my looking forward. I think it was last week's hopeful because I want to come back to it. It's one that I have physically. And that again is a book that has been recommended to me a few times. And I'm starting to learn that when multiple different people from different areas of my life are recommending a book to me, I should probably read it. I'm talking right now about Rosie Walsh's The Love of My Life that was published last year by Penguin Random House. This is marketed on the front of the book as a psychological thriller. And so I'm interested to see what that means and how that plays out. I have liked some psychological thrillers and I've hated other ones. This sounds interesting to me because Leo, our male main character is an obituary writer. And I don't know why, but that sounds fascinating to me. 
his wife, Emma, is a well-known marine biologist and she becomes seriously ill. Leo's coping mechanism is to go through the details of her life to write her obituary, but he ends up discovering something that he didn't expect, and it's hinted that they're pretty dark secrets. Emma loves her husband and their daughter, and she knows that she has to prove to Leo that she is the person that he fell in love with, the woman he really does know, but first she's going to have to be really honest with him. And that came out last year. It's The Love of My Life by Rosie Walsh and sounds really interesting. It's not very long and I have it physically. Yeah, I have seen this book a lot of places. So I am interested to hear what you think about it. And it's, I was literally adding it to our official spreadsheet as you were talking. So it's down and now you got to read it. The last book I'm going to tell you guys about today is Emily Wilde's Encyclopedia of Fairies. This is a new series called Emily Wilde by Heather Fawcett. This is a fantasy adult historical fiction, fae romance novel. I don't know much about it, but the kind of like tagline on Goodreads, so not the synopsis, but the tagline is a curmudgeonly professor journeys to a small town in the far north to study fairy folklore and discovers dark fae magic, friendship and love in this heartwarming and enchanting fantasy. Honestly, it reminded me of um, the Very Secret Society of Your Regular Witches, which I absolutely loved. It sounded like that mixed with like fae and like being a professor and quirky and I don't know we'll see I really don't know that much about it uh, other than what I'm saying it has an average rating of 4.2 on Goodreads which is really really high it came out in January of this year and I've seen it at everywhere people are really really loving it and it's not that long it's like 320 pages or something the U.S. hardcover edition is beautiful. It's a naked hardback, um, and I love it. So I'm really excited to, you know, read some other fantasy romance. It sounds like it's very light on the romance, but we'll see. It's on the looking forward to, so I'll get back to you guys and let you know. I have seen this a ton of places, too. It was on so many people's have to read in 23 or most anticipated read type of thing. The cover does look really beautiful, I'm intrigued by it in many ways because first of all, I am also a curmudgeonly professor. So, you know, maybe there's something there that I might learn and I am not disinterested. So maybe, you know, occasionally I dip my toe into a magic slash supernatural quasi fantasy situation. This could be, this could be that. I am looking forward to Immortality by Dana Schwartz that comes out February 28th, which is by the time you're listening to this has already happened, but it's really soon for me next week. I really enjoyed the first book in this duet, uh, Anatomy, a love story. Uh, There were definitely questions that did not get answered in that first book. So I'm intrigued to see where this goes and what happens with the characters. I don't want to spoil the first book. So I'm not actually going to say a lot about what I know, which isn't very much about immortality. But in the first book, we we follow Hazel Sinnott, who wants to be a surgeon. But it's Edinburgh in 1817. And it's not, quote, proper of a lady of her standing to have these dreams especially because it involves medicine and the body. So she ends up making a deal with a renowned surgeon after she ends up getting kicked out of this anatomist society. And the deal is if she can pass the medical exam on her own, the university will allow her to enroll or he will allow her to enroll in the university. But in order to pass this medical exam, she's going to need to dissect some bodies, some corpses. And that's where this guy, Jack, Kerr comes in and he's what they call a resurrection man, um, which means he digs up bodies to sell to scientists and doctors who need them. When he and Hazel meet, she starts to wonder if maybe he can help her. He's really fascinated by Hazel, but also concerned because his job is getting pretty dangerous. There's a plague that's beginning to spread and his friends are disappearing. And he just kind of feels this overall dread when you know something isn't right. And they do end up having to work together to find out what's really going on. And again, there were questions in the end that were pretty big ones and we don't know what happened. So I'm interested in the second book and all I know about it 
is that Hazel gets wrapped up somehow in the royal family and continues to face some dangerous situations. And she's dealing with the events and the fallout from what happened in the first book. And that's all I know. And honestly, that's enough for me because I loved anatomy. I thought it was really interesting. And I want to know where things are going to end up in this duet. And I do think it's not a series that it's just a duet, but I do not know that for sure. I really loved book one and I'm looking forward to reading book two as well. Yeah. Yes, I am going to get to it. I just don't know when, if you saw the state of my Kindle right now, it's, it's a mess. So and I don't know. spent when. a long time cleaning up your Kindle recently. So I know it got, me- it's, it got messy again somehow. Well, well, you know how to fix it now. You got it. Don't, don't get me started on that. It was so fun though. I went back and like cleared out all of these old, like when I use the library, I use the library so much that when a book gets returned to the library, it still shows up on the Kindle. So I went through, it would have to be thousands and thousands of books. It was several thousand. It took you like a a while, but we did. It was fun though to like watch you reflect. I I know. I was like, Oh, I remember this book. Oh, I should read this book. It was, it was quite fun. Once again, I want to say thank you all for listening and for sharing our podcast with other people that you know, other bookish folks. You're helping us to grow and to reach more readers, and we really, really appreciate it. You can find all the ways, as Zach mentioned, to follow us individually and as a show in our notes along with the books we've mentioned in today's episode. We really do love talking about books, in case you couldn't tell that already. So feel free to engage with us and leave comments on our Instagram don't underscore read underscore the underscore synopsis. The link to that again will be in the show notes and we'll be back in your ears very soon. Next week, we have a show with a lot of books, some great, some meh, some we DNF. It's our January, February wrap up and we're really excited to bring it to you. Until then, what you read is up to you, but take our advice. Don't read the synopsis. All the high fives.